And if you've got a Bible, you can open it to James chapter 1. Uh, we'll be in verses 18 to 25 this morning is where we'll be reading and unpacking together. And if you don't have a Bible, this text will be on the screen for you as we read it. Uh, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. James writes these words. He says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor and Bible teacher in the 1800s in England. He tells a story of another pastor uh, who used to visit his parishioners throughout the week as he, after he preached sermons. And as he went around on this one occasion to one lady's home, and he happened upon her doing her work. And she was a washer of wool. So they were out shearing the sheep in the fields, and they would bring the wool to her place. And she would have a spigot, and she would wash the wool and cleanse it uh, before they utilized it for whatever purposes they were going to use it for. And so this pastor shows up at this woman's home, and he finds her to be washing the wool, and he asks her about the sermon that she had heard that previous Sunday. He asked her what she had learned from that sermon. That's always a scary proposition for any pastor, right? What'd you learn from the sermon? And he said she couldn't even recount what text that he had preached upon, much less anything that she had necessarily retained intellectual information, and so he said, well, my, my dear lady, I'm so afraid that you are just a forgetful hearer and the sermon has done you no good. And so at which point she replies, come see, pastor. And so she takes him around the back of her home where she has the spigot where she's washing the wool. And she takes the wool out and she runs the water over it through the spigot. And she says, look, the wool doesn't retain the water, but as the water passes through the wool, it cleanses it. It makes it clean. To which Spurgeon, as he's commenting upon this story, as he tells it in his writing about the book of James, she says, never mind about keeping water in the sieve so long as it washes the wool. To which Spurgeon says, no man can be said to be a forgetful hearer who is a doer of the work he is bidden to perform. Now listen, if you are, uh, spent any time in church at all, you've probably heard hundreds of sermons, right? Hundreds of lessons that maybe you've studied or video series that you've engaged in or books that you've read or conferences perhaps that you've attended. If you spent any time in church at all over the course of your life, you've heard countless numbers of sermons. And chances are that you have not retained every piece of information that every pastor has ever given you, Right? I'm going to go ahead and tell you off the hook because I have not retained every piece of information that I studied in seminary or that I heard at a conference or that I heard sitting under someone else's teaching and preaching. But there is a cumulative effect that that preaching has upon us over the course of time by which it cleanses us and changes us if, right? Now that cleansing effect only takes place if we take what we hear and we do something with it. 
Now, it doesn't mean that you retain every piece of information that you ever heard, but the particular drive of that talk or the drive of that message, that you do something with it, that you act on it. See, when James comes in the middle of, or toward the end of chapter one to talk about his vision for what maturity as a believer in Jesus looks like, he doesn't say maturity looks like, is measured, like the benchmark for Christian maturity isn't the number of pastors that you podcast. Right? How many guys do you got on your, on your phone? Or how many people do you got on your computer? Or how many do you listen to each week? He says the mark of Christian maturity, the benchmark, is not the numbers of pastors that you podcast, but what you do in response to what God says. What you do in response to what God says. It's great to listen to a lot of sermons because it can have that cumulative cleansing and transforming and changing power in our lives, but only when we act on what we hear. And that is true both. That is true both in reference to our justification, being made right with God vertically, right? Coming into right relationship with Jesus. Because when we hear the Bible preached and the gospel proclaimed, and we hear that Jesus has been crucified, that Jesus has been buried, that Jesus has been risen, and in order to be in right standing with God, you can't climb your way up to him, but you have to receive the gift that he has sent to us through his son, who lived in our place and died in our place. So you got to act on that by placing faith in Christ for your justification, but the same is true for your sanctification, for your growth in holiness and progression in Christ-likeness, so that tomorrow and next week and next month and next year, you're looking more like Jesus than you did the day or the week or the month or the year before, right? It doesn't happen just by hearing, James says, but by doing something with what you hear, doing something with what you hear. He says, that's the benchmark, That's the benchmark. And listen, there has never been a time in human history where you and I have had access to as much resources and preaching and teaching. There's never been a time in human history where any culture or society has had access to more teaching and preaching and resources than the one that we live in today. But my fear in my life and my fear in your life and the fear, my fear in the life of the American church is that even though we live in a time in human history where we've never had so much access to as much teaching and preaching as we do today, that there is so little growth and progression and change and holiness in my life, in your life, in the life of the American church. Because what James envisions is a kind of doer's of the word and not hearers only. And listen, if you and I are going to move in that direction, if we're going to take what we hear and act on it, if we're going to be doers of the word and not hearers only, it's going to require that, that some, some things take place in our lives that I think James helps us with in this text. And that's what we want to dig in this morning. How do we become the kind of doers that James envisions in this text? So that indeed there is a cumulative cleansing and changing effect that God's word has whenever it is preached, whenever it is read by us. And whether we sit in a Sunday sermon or a life group discussing God's word or we're reading it personally, that we're doing something with what we hear or with what we read and what God is saying. How do we become these kinds of doers? And the first thing James says to us about becoming these kinds of doers is that we have to learn to yield to what I would call an inside out kind of change in our lives. 
We have to learn to yield to an inside-out kind of change in our lives. In verse 21, Sean cited this earlier just a moment ago as he read from that text or cited that, this text briefly. That In verse 21, what we're called to do is to receive, James says, what he calls the implanted word. Now, whenever he calls those to receive the implanted word, he is not issuing an evangelistic call to those who do not have faith in Christ to trust in Jesus. He is talking to people who, verse 18, have already been brought forth by the word of truth. So in verse 21, he says to Christians, he says, you are to receive what God has planted in your hearts. You are to respond appropriately to what God has, the, the, has set roots down in your soul. So essentially what James is saying is that, there should, that what has set root in your heart, what has set root in your soul, you should continue to respond to, you should continue to receive it, you should continue to act on it, you should continue to do something with it. So you can continue to build your lives around boasting in who Jesus is and what he has done, but also what he has taught you and I to do, that you should receive that. And when you think of the word receive that, essentially what James is describing is this, a yielding in our lives, a continual yielding. Now listen, if you're driving down the road or driving down the highway and two roads are coming together, particularly like an exit ramp or an entrance ramp uh, to the interstate, Interchange. There's typically a yield sign as you come off of the exit ramp. If you're on a side road, on the service road, and somebody's coming off of the exit ramp, you're supposed to what? Yield to them, aren't you? You're supposed to give them the right of way, right? Surrender, right? And allow them to pass forward. Now, most of us, when we see that yield sign, we don't necessarily think about yielding the right of way and surrendering and pulling back so someone else can merge ahead. We typically think the yield sign means you got to punch the gas as hard as you can and exert your will in order to move in front of them, right? At least that's maybe just me, right? So you, that's, that's typically what we think of when we see a yield sign, right? We want to jump out in front, but James says what you've got to do is you've got to learn to observe that yield sign in your soul whenever God speaks through his word. There's got to be a response to it where you yield the right of way to God in your life. Where you surrender and you submit to what he has to say as opposed to resisting what he has to say or as opposed to rejecting what God has to say. We've got to learn to do spiritually what we're supposed to do physically at those exit ramps. We've got to yield to what God says. And it's not just a one-time occurrence that takes place when we prayed a prayer when we were eight or whenever we were 12 or when we were 27. It's an ongoing command that God gives us that we are to continually yield to what he says, to an inside-out kind of change. There's something that God has placed within us that should be working out of us as we yield to what he says. It takes place from the inside out. Now, see, this is, this is kind of different for some of us this morning because perhaps we were raised in an environment where change came from the outside in, right? And so in order to have true and lasting change, it required lots of willpower and exertion of self-control. That's not what James is talking about here. He's talking about something that takes place in here first, in the heart first, in the soul first, and then it begins to work out into the life and into the actions, into the words, and into the behaviors. So how does this kind of inside-out kind of change take place in our lives? First of all, it takes place prayerfully. It takes place prayerfully. It takes place as we petition God and ask God to do what only God can do 
in our lives. We get on our knees before God and we say, God, would you do something in my life that I cannot do for myself, and that is change my heart. Change my heart. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said this. He said, I cannot by direct moral effort give myself new motives. And I love the way he says it. He says, after the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can only be done by God. Lewis says, listen, you cannot exert enough willpower or moral effort to change your desires, to change your motives, to change what you want in your heart. He says it's like an infant who takes their first couple of steps around the coffee table, and you realize very quickly in the Christian life that everything that needs to take place at the fundamental level of motives and desires in your heart, that you are powerless to do anything to change those, but you are absolutely dependent upon God to do something in here that only he can do. That only he can do. See, if we understand that, that if this inside-out kind of change of receiving the implanted word that God has placed within our hearts, if receiving that continually and perpetually is what we are called to do, then it would change a little bit about the way that we pray. See, most often when we pray to God, we pray to this deity who's in the sky that's going to do stuff for us, right? We ask God to do stuff for us. We ask God to change our job situation, or we ask God to change our marital status, or we ask God to change the arrangement that we have with our children, or we ask God to do these things for us, provide for us. But if we understand what James is saying here, that true and lasting change, becoming the kind of doers that he envisions, it begins not out here, but in here, then we need to begin to pray not only that God would do stuff for us, but that he would do stuff in us. He would do stuff in us that we cannot do ourselves. So when we're called to be generous, we would ask God not just, hey, it's not just buck up with willpower and go write a check, but we ask God, God, would you give me a heart that moves out toward people in generosity? Or when we see that we're called toward purity, we wouldn't just kind of lock down bars on everything in our lives, but we say, God, would you give me a heart that pants after purity in my life so that I would honor you with my mind, I would honor you with my desires, you see, it, it's prayer, it takes place prayerfully. We've got to get on our knees before God and say, God, not just will you do these things for me, God, but will you do this in me? Second of all, it takes place progressively. Progressively. That means this. It doesn't happen overnight. There is no microwave kind of change for the soul. That's a disappointment to some of us, right? Because we thought, I came to Jesus, and so I'm supposed, everything's supposed to change automatically in my life. Everything's supposed to get better, not harder. But it takes place progressively. It takes place at a, sometimes a, very slowly, progressively over the course of time so that you can't necessarily measure your growth and the change that takes place in your life by looking at a, a snapshot of day-to-day. But you can measure it by looking at a snapshot of year to year or, or, or season to season of life. So you look back and you go, you know what? Five years ago, I was so, I was really a prick, okay? I was very impatient. Nobody liked being around me. Today, though, God has worked in me some patience and developed some of that in my character, 
so that I don't fly off the handle as easily as I used to, and I don't lose my cool as quickly as I once did. That doesn't happen overnight. It happens over the span of time, progressively. Not only does it happen prayerfully and progressively, but it happens at different paces in different people's lives. So that the same pace as it's happening in your neighbor's life or in your husband's wife life or in your wife's life or in your friend's life, it might be happening at a different pace in your life. So you can't just measure the validity of growth and change or even the validity of Christian faith by looking at two different individuals. C.S. I love the way C.S. Lewis says this in his little uh, uh, book, God on the Dock. He says this. He talks about there are two individuals that you hold up against each other. He says one is a, these are his words, not mine. He says one is a cantankerous, sour old maid, okay? And he says the other is a nice, popular, likable young fellow. He says, now the cantankerous, sour old maid is a Christian, and the nice, popular, likable young fellow is not a Christian, doesn't believe in Jesus. He says, but you cannot just measure the warrants and merits and validity of the Christian faith by holding up these two individuals against each other. He says, because who knows how much more sour and cantankerous the old maid might be if she were not a Christian, and how much more likable this young fellow may be if he were. See, Lewis goes on and he says this at the end of that comparison. You can't judge Christianity simply by comparing the product in these two people. You would need to know what kind of raw material Christ was working on in both cases. You need to know what he's starting with. It takes place at different paces. This inside-out kind of change. So how do you know if you're experiencing this kind of inside-out change? How do you know if this is, it's taking place from within here and coming out here as opposed to you trying to force something outside in? Listen, the way, one of the ways, there's more than one way, but one of the ways that you know is because what you find progressively in your life over the course of time is that your have-tos become want-tos. Your have-tos become want-tos. See, if you're only changing from the outside in, then every change you're trying to make is a have-to. Right? I have to change the way that I do this, or I have to change the way that I do that. But if you're changing from the inside out, then your have-tos begin to change and become want-tos, so that there's new desires that are forming within your heart and within your soul. Before the gospel sets roots, before the word is implanted into our hearts and souls, before it sets roots, every change that we try and muster in our lives is a moral and very kind of religiously oriented change, that I have to do this if I'm to be accepted by God and loved by God. God and received by God. But the more that we understand what God has done for us in Christ and we're receiving that implanted word that he's set root in our hearts, what happens is those have-tos become want-tos and our desires begin to change. So it's no longer I have to be generous, but I want to be generous. Or I have to be pure, but I desire to be pure and honor God with my thoughts. Or I have to be obedient, but I want to be obedient one of the ways you know that change is actually taking place from within here is things that you used to have to do now become things that you want to do. 
And I love the text that Sean read earlier as we worship together out of Ezekiel 36. There's another text in Jeremiah that promises something very similar to what God promised through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. It's a text in Jeremiah 31 where God promises a new covenant that he would make with his people. And listen to what he says in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Listen to what he says, declares the Lord. I will put my law where? Within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's very interesting. God makes a promise through Ezekiel to take out hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh. God says through Jeremiah, what he's going to do is make a new covenant that Jesus says that he inaugurates when he takes the, gla- the, the, the cup and he blesses it. And he says, drink. This is the new covenant inaugurated with my blood. So through Jesus, God makes a new covenant with his people, whereby he says, I will write my law on their hearts, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. In other words, I will take out their heart of stone of all the have-tos that are laid on top of us and just laid on top of us, and they will become want-tos so that they have new desires with which they are operating. Is there an inside-out kind of change taking place in your life as the want of the have-tos of your religious activity are becoming the want-tos of a fervor and passion to respond and yield to what God has done in your heart through the person and work of Jesus Christ? That's the kind of inside-out change necessary in order to become a doer and not a hearer only. Now, what happens if this kind of change doesn't take place? If we habitually reject and resist and only hear the word without doing it? What if we know a whole lot about what the Bible says, but we really pay very little attention to doing any of it? Listen to what James tells us. He says, essentially, this is what happens, is we deceive ourselves into living with a false assurance. Now, these are not my words. These are James, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture, listen to what he says in verse 22. James says this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He says, if you're a hearer only and you know a lot about what the Bible says, but you really do very little of it, you're not the kind of doer that James envisions, but just a hearer only. He says, you wind up deceiving yourselves, but how are you deceiving yourselves? James says back up in verse 21 that this word, this implanted word that we are to continue to yield to in our lives as God presses on areas of our life and says, bring those into conformity with who I am and what I have said and what I have taught you to do. He says, if there is a yielding to that, he says, there is evidence that the word has set root in your heart and in your life and that it will save you. That will save you. Not your obedience will save you, but the rooting of God's word in your heart will save you. And you know that God has set his word set root in your heart because there is an obedience. What is taking place on the inside eventually begins to work its way to the outside. And you become doers of that word that you're receiving. 
that you are yielding to constantly. But James says, if there is a continual and habitual resistance and rejection of conforming your life to what God has said, he says, then you're deceiving yourself into living with a false assurance that indeed that's able to save you, that hearing only will save you without there being any implanting and receiving and doing. He says, you're living with a false assurance. See, my fear, my fear for some in the American churches, they are very quick to boast about what Jesus has done, but they pay little to no attention to what he taught us to do. And so when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, And you see Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, anyone who harbors and festers anger and bitterness in their heart without forgiveness, I tell you, they've as good as killed someone. You've heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that if you harbor lust and perversion in your minds and your hearts, I tell you, it's as good as you sleeping with that person. You have heard that it was said, and he kind of reorients the heart of the law that God gives, not just to be a list of rules and regulations, but something that would be affect change from the inside and work itself out into the life, into the behavior, into the actions. And we cannot boast about who Jesus is and what he has done without taking seriously also what he has taught us to do. And James says, if you do, then you're deceiving yourself. That you can gather to sing songs, and you can gather to receive the Lord's table, and you can gather to sit under preaching, and you can gather to have discussions and read scripture and talk about it in life groups, but without doing something with what God has said, with what you're hearing and celebrating, talking about and reading, James says, there is a self-deception that's taking place in your life as you're trying to pacify and appease your conscience by thinking that by being a hearer only, by being a hearer only, that that is something before God. James says, no, no. You see, you and I tend to deceive ourselves by thinking that there is a raging fire in our hearts when there's really no heat in our lives. Doesn't make any sense, does it? If there's a raging fire in our hearts, then there would be heat in our lives. Is there heat in your life? Are you deceiving yourself? Are you a hearer only, or are you a doer of what you hear? I don't want you to live in self-deception. And so the rest of the time that we have together this morning, there's three things I want to tell you that we got to do. If you're going to move from being a hearer to a doer. And the first one is this. So you got to remember who you are. you got to remember who you are. Look at what James says in verse 19. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. And when he says, know this in verse 19, the, 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 the scholars are divided on this issue. Like, is he pointing forward to something that's coming after this or pointing backward to what he's just said? I think he's pointing backward to what he just said as a transition into what he's about to say. He says, you got to know this. And what has he just said that they need to know if they're going to become the kind of doers that he envisions them becoming? And what they have to know is who they are. They are sons and daughters of God in verse 18, who according to God's own will have been brought forth by the word of truth. The gospel has given them birth. 
He says, you are a child of God. You are his son. You are his daughter. And you've got to know who you are. You've got to know that at the bottom of all your activity, of everything that Jesus teaches you to do, is what he has done. At the bottom of your, your response to God is his loving pursual of you. At the bottom of your choice of God is his choice of you. At the bottom of your conversion, the bottom of your salvation, at the bottom of all growth and change in your life is what God is doing in you. You see, before James ever says anything about obeying the word in verse 22, he speaks of receiving that word in verse 21. And before he says anything about receiving that word in verse 21, he speaks of being brought forth or given birth to by that word in verse 18. The word gives birth, continue to receive it and yield to it. And part of what it looks like to yield to it is to do something with it. But if you're going to do something with it, you've got to continue to yield to it. And if you're going to continue to yield to it, you've got to remember that you are brought forth by it. That you're God's son, that you're God's daughter, that you're his child. You've got to know who you are before you begin to try and do what you're supposed to do. And this is all over the Bible. It's not just here in James. It's everywhere throughout Scripture. You've got to know who you are before you begin to try and do what you're called to do. If you go back, and I'll give you two examples. You go back into the Old Testament. And before God ever stops Israel at Mount Sinai and says, here's the stone tablets, right? Here's the Ten Commandments. Here's who you're supposed to be, and here's what you're supposed to do. What does he do before he brings Israel to Sinai and gives them these tablets and says, do this? What does he do before that? He crushes Pharaoh in Egypt, the one who had held them captive and enslaved, and he redeems them and leads them out. See, before God ever says, here's what you're supposed to do, he ransoms or redeems and rescues them from slavery and bondage. Before God ever gives the law, he says, you are mine. Then, this is what it looks like to live as my people. You see that? Before he ever gives them the tablets, he brings them out of slavery. In addition, if you read Paul's letters in the New Testament and Romans and Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians, it, every single letter, every single letter to a church, maybe not necessarily to an individual like 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy or Titus or Philemon, but every single letter to a church starts this way. This is what God has done for you in Christ. Every single letter starts with these indicatives about who they are in Jesus and only about halfway through the letter does he begin to transition to the imperatives. This is what you are to do now. Here's who you are in Jesus. Here's how you should live. God has rescued you from Satan's sin and death. Here's how you are to respond to him with a life of gratitude and obedience. It's not, here's the law, and if you're really good at keeping it, then I'll rescue you from Pharaoh. He doesn't do that in Israel, does he? He doesn't show up with the tablets while they're still there in Egypt and say, if you can do these 10 things really good, then I will take you out of this land and I will bring you to the land of promise. No, he shows up in Egypt and says, you are mine. I'm going to lead you to the land of promise. And on the way, I'm going to show you what it looks like to be my people. Nor does he in the New Testament come and say, here's what you are to do. And if you're really good at doing this, then maybe I will rescue you from Satan's sin and death. 
No, he says, you are mine, and here's how you should live. That's the order all throughout the Bible, including here in James. And if you and I are going to be the kind of people who are James envisions as doers, you've got to remember who you are. Because if you forget who you are, one of two things are going to happen. Right? One of two things are going to happen when you forget who you are. First, either you're going to disregard obedience in your life. You're going to set it on the coffee table and you're going to go out about your day and give it no attention. You'll be a hearer and you continue to sit under preaching and teaching. You continue to read. You might even continue to show up at life group and discuss, but there will be no measurable change in your life. Because you'll disregard holiness because you don't remember who you belong to and what he has done for you. Or if you forget who you are, you'll swing to the other end of the spectrum and you'll begin to create and invent very rigid, legalistic ways of trying to generate the kind of change that makes you a doer. Right? So either you disregard it altogether or you find a very legalistic, moralistic way of trying to accomplish it. Because you forgot what God has done to rescue and redeem and where he has set you. And then he said, do this. So your have-tos become want-tos. And there's this inside-out kind of change. So you got to know who you are. Second of all, second of all, you got to fight with all vigor, pride in your life. you got to fight against pride, tooth and nail. Look at what James says in verse 21. He says that we are to receive the implanted word, How? With a meekness. Some of your translations might even say humility. You're to receive it with humility or with meekness. Now, what does it mean to be humble? It means the opposite of being proud and arrogant, doesn't it? Of thinking, I know better or I deserve better. Right? We receive it with meekness. So we're not exalting ourselves at a, to a place or position above God, but we're humbling ourselves beneath him and saying, it's not what I think about this that matters, but what God has said about this that matters. And so I'm going to yield to what God has said as opposed to what I think. And in order to do that, you've got to fight against pride. Here's why. Because pride is like spiritual Kevlar in your life. Okay? You know what a Kevlar vest is? This is what our police officers and military personnel wear whenever they're out in the, on, on the streets or in the field in order to protect their vital organs from penetration with a bullet or a weapon, right? And so Kevlar is this, like, incredibly miraculous material that just, if you layer enough of it together, it can stop lots of stuff, right? And pride is kind of like spiritual Kevlar so that whenever the word is fired as we read it or we hear it preached and it, it, it makes contact with our pride, it just, our pride just kind of absorbs it. It doesn't make any kind of penetration, produce any kind of change because we think we know better or we think we deserve better. Now, pride is so hard to see in our lives. It's so easy to see in other people's lives, right? You can look at everybody else and go, they're such a prideful person. But it's so hard to look in the mirror and see it in our lives. So there's five things I want to help you with for trying to diagnose spiritual pride in your life. First one is this. Spiritually proud people are not teachable. They're not teachable. Jonathan Edwards is so helpful on this topic. I want to read you several quotes from him as we work through this together. But spiritually proud people are not teachable. He says, the spiritually proud person is full of light already and feels that he does not need instruction. So he's ready to despise the offer of it. 
On the other hand, the humble person is like a little child who easily receives instruction. He is cautious in his estimate of himself, sensitive as to how liable he is to go astray. If it is suggested to him that he does go astray, he's most ready to inquire into the matter. He says those who are spiritually proud, I think they have all the light they could possibly need and they cannot receive any from anyone else. Are you teachable? Are you moldable? The second diagnostic, the spiritual person is not only not teachable, but he's critical and judgmental. Edward says, proud people tend to think of others' sin, the miserable delusions of hypocrites, the deadness of some saints with bitterness, or the opposition to holiness of many believers. He says they're always pointing a finger at someone else. Pure Christian humility, however, is silent about the sins of others or speaks of them with grief and pity. You might say through tears. The spiritually proud person finds fault with other saints for their lack of progress and grace, while the humble Christian sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. He complains most of himself and of his own spiritual coldness and readily hopes that most everybody has more love and thankfulness to God than he. He says a spiritually proud person is always looking at someone else and going, can you believe what they said? Can you believe what they did? Can you believe where they went? He says, but the humble person is not looking outwardly, but looking inwardly and going, God, why is my heart so cold and why is my heart so hard? Third, the spiritually proud person is a separatist for separation's sake. Listen to what Edward says. He says, spiritual pride often disposes people to act different in external appearance, to assume a different way of speaking, countenance, or behavior. However, the humble Christian, though he will be firm in his duty, going the way of heaven alone, even if all the world forsake him, yet he does not delight in being different for difference's sake. He does not try to set himself up to be viewed and observed as one distinguished, but on the contrary, he is disposed to become all things to all men, to yield to others, to conform to them, and please them in all but sin. He says, in everything else, I'm willing to yield, I'm willing to conform, I'm willing to bend to everything but sin. Everything but sin. So that I'm not just going to separate myself from someone for separation's sake. I'm not just going to set myself up on a pedestal and look different for different sake. Fourthly, Edwards helps us with this as well. The spiritually proud person cannot handle criticism. Oh, now it's starting to get personal, right? The spiritually proud person cannot handle criticism. Proud people take great notice of opposition and injuries and are prone to speak often about them with an air of bitterness or contempt. Christian humility, on the other hand, disposes a person to be more like his blessed Lord, who when reviled did not open his mouth, but committed himself in silence to him who judges righteously. For the humble Christian, the more clamorous and furious the world is against him, the more silent and still he will be. How do you take criticism? When people critique you, whenever they criticize you. Listen, I I learned... I learned about 14 years ago in ministry, right? About three years in, everything was like, oh, this is great, man. I was playing events and hanging out with kids. I was doing student ministry. But then I hit this wall where all of a sudden the first wave of criticism began to rise and it began to expose some ugliness in my own heart. How do you respond to criticism? How do you handle when people disagree with you, whenever they critique you? Fifthly and finally, he says, the spiritual proud people position themselves at the center of attention. 
Another pattern, Edwards says, of spiritually proud people is to behave in ways that make them the focus of others. It is natural for a person under the influence of pride to take all the respect that is paid him. Yes, I love being respected, right? The proud person says, look at me, I'm such a good person. I'm such a great Christian. If others show a disposition to submit to him and yield in deference to him, he is open to it and freely receives it. In fact, they come to expect such treatment and to form an ill opinion of those who do not give them what they feel they deserve. So Edward says, listen, listen, you've got a real high opinion of yourself. You're very proud, very arrogant. He says, you're going to put yourself at the center of attention and make everything about you. You're going to expect everyone to defer to you, everyone to submit to you, everyone to acquiesce to you, right? Bow down to you. And when someone doesn't, you're going to go, what's wrong with them? What's their problem? Everyone else thinks I'm the greatest thing since sliced cheese. What's wrong with that dude? The center of attention. You can't handle criticism. We're not, you're not teachable. You're critical and judgmental. And you set yourself apart from people just for the sake of being set apart from people. He says those are all marks of spiritual pride in life. And if pride, if pride is running rampant in your soul and you do not see it, then the word, it's like a Kevlar vest. Every time it gets fired out, pride just absorbs it. And it makes no lasting change. So you've got to fight everything tooth and nail against pride. Know who you are, fight against pride, and finally, listen, this one will be really short, I promise. You've got to stare into the mirror and do something with what you see. You've got to stare into the mirror and do something with what you see. In verses 23 to 25, James compares not how we see or the type of mirror that we are looking in, but what you do with what you have seen. He says the hearer only looks into the mirror and they go away and forget what they look like. But the one who is a doer looks into the mirror of what he calls the perfect law of freedom. And when he goes away, he does something with what he has seen. Now, what is the perfect law of freedom? The perfect law of freedom, I think, is this. Is this. It's staring into what Jesus, this is what most commentators would say as they think about James's writing, that James is reflecting back on what Jesus has taught and then preaching about it. And so for James, he's thinking of the perfect law of freedom as the law as it was fulfilled by Jesus. And as the heart of it was uncovered through his teaching. The, heart, the law as it was fulfilled by him. right? So you look at his life who perfectly lived every, crossed every T and dotted every I of every command that was ever given in the law. And he did so in my place. And he did so in your place. Because he knew that you could never climb the stairs up to God, so he came down them to you. And that as you stare into the law, as it was perfectly fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus Christ, then there's something that takes place inside. Something that happens in the heart where have-tos become want-tos, and then you begin to do what you want to do as Jesus taught you to do it. And so you begin to forgive as opposed to harboring anger. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. You begin to guard your eyes and your heart because you want to be pure, not because you have to be. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. 
You begin to give and care for those in need, not because you're trying to climb the ladder to get up to God, but because he has come down it to you and your have tos have become want tos. And now you want to love those who are in need and help provide and care for them. And you want to be generous. So you got to stare into the mirror of the perfect law of freedom and see what was done in Christ and then what he tells us to do and then do something with it. What do you need to do this week to not be a hearer? For some of us, it may mean to not be a hearer that you need to humble yourselves before God for the first time ever and bow your knee before Jesus and say, Jesus, you have done what I could not do. You have kept the law in, its, in all of its perfection. And I bow my knee before you, recognizing that apart from you, I am utterly hopeless, helpless, and lost. And for some of us, the first thing that we need to do in response to what God has said is to humble ourselves before God in salvation, to place your faith and trust in what Jesus has done, not what you can do. For others of us in the room this morning, as we read God's word, as it's preached, as what has been planted within us sets roots and it begins to bear fruit in our lives, we need to yield to it this week. Maybe there are areas of your life that God has had his thumb on for a while. And you've had your foot on the gas because you've been trying to cut him off at the pass, man, right? But maybe this week you need to slam on the brake and say, God, what you say matters, not what I think. I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning as we reflect on what God has said. Sean and the band are going to come lead us as we have a ref- kind of a time of response and reflection this morning as we bring our service to a close. And as we do, I want to encourage you, if, man, to, this morning God has, has, has opened your eyes to see the fact that it's not about what you can do, but about what he has done. I'll be in the back. I'd love for you to come find me and talk to me. I'd love to visit with you about what it looks like to humble yourself before God, knowing that you can never climb your way up to him, but he's come down to you in Jesus Christ. Or maybe if God's been pressing on your heart this morning, that this morning you would hit the brake and you would yield and you would surrender and you would give right of way to his spirit in your life through repentance. As you lift your eyes up to see the one upon whom one upon whom your life has been built, the cornerstone that's been fixed, the very foundation of who you are. I want to pray for us, and we're going to sing together. Father, we come today, we give you thanks for what you do in us that only you can do, and we ask that you would do it today. We ask that you would help us to humble ourselves before you, that we would receive with humility the implanted word and that there would be an inside-out kind of change that begins to flow over into our doing and not just our hearing, that we would remember we've been brought forth by the word and that we would receive the word that's been implanted within us and that we would become doers of that word so that this church might be a beacon of light and hope in our community because we are, we'd be filled with people who are not only just sitting and listening and having ears tickled or having a warm emotional response to something that we sing or something that is said, but rather be filled with people who are vigilant 
about remembering who they are, about fighting against pride so that the word is not absorbed but penetrates and brings change and that we would stare deeply into what Christ has done on our behalf in fulfilling the law and then we would move out to do what he has taught us to do and we would find freedom in it. As we sing this morning, I pray that your spirit would continue to minister the word to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.